This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. It has been a while. We last posted this show on the 12th of September, meaning that we recorded it several days earlier, which meant that September 11th, the 20th anniversary, took place between the last time we were talking into a microphone and now. And uh, you can bet that, well, we just are bound to have a few things to say about that. Starting with a communication I received from a longtime contributor to this program who pointed out to me that there was a very good movie on Amazon. Well, on Amazon Prime. It's called Shock and Awe. And uh, it takes a look at what happened back during the Bush administration in the wake of 9-11 and all of the lying and misdirection plays that took place. Noted our good friend Pablo, it detailed how only Knight Ritter and, and Radio Parallax, of course, got it right back in 2003. And, uh, well, I, I, I think that I would also add the McClatchy organization did a pretty good job, actually, back in 03. Although, sadly, I'm hard-pressed to think of anybody else besides Knight Ritter and McClatchy and us that were correctly informing you, the public, that, boy, were you being lied to. I hearken back to those programs in, in 02 and 03 when we were still young and fresh. Well, I think like to think we're still, still fresh. Yeah, we, were, we weren't quite as young. But uh, we kept playing, you know, Fredonia's Going to War from the Marx Brothers classic Duck Soup because we knew that a war in Iraq was being planned from the get-go, something which subsequently has earned quite a bit of coverage. I do want to note that I've not, I've not gotten through shock and awe, but I've watched the first third of it, and boy, it's pretty good. We'll have a further report on it uh, in a future program. But yeah, all that nonsense about, uh, you know, wep- weapons of mass destruction. That stuff was all made up, you know. We were covering PNAC, the project for the New American Century, and how it was talking about, well, we need to have another Pearl Harbor, after which uh, America probably will be galvanized sufficiently to take the actions it needs to. And I got to say, watching some of that footage of, of George W. Bush looking at the camera and lying his ass off was, is, is, was and is disturbing. And that was one of the few things we agreed with Donald Trump on when candidate Trump trying to take down Jeb Bush, announced that, yeah, your brother started a war in Iraq, and that was a big, fat mistake. Mr. Mill points out he also called him a liar when he did that. I'd forgotten that detail, but yeah, that sounds right. So we've got to talk about a couple things. We've got to talk about 9-11 before we're done today. We've got to talk about uh, the current situation and how it leads back to 9-11 and the Bush administration, and uh, what's going on in, for the future in terms of how the Republican Party is determined to steal the 2022 election and 2024 election, something that we, um, we fear a great deal. But I have, a, I have a, a, an editorial that, that was apparently published on the 15th of September. I'm not sure what my source is on this. might be the San Jose Mercury News. Piece by, piece by Jamel Bowie, titled George W. Bush 2021, Meet George W. Bush of 2001. He starts out, you can draw a straight line from the war on terror to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. From those that gave us mass surveillance, indefinite detention, extraordinary rendition, and, quote, enhanced interrogation, unquote, to the insurrectionist conviction 
Two, the insurrectionist conviction that the only way to save America is to subvert it. Or as journalist Spencer Ackerman writes in Reign of Terror, how the 9-11 era destabilized America and produced Trump, a war that never defined its enemy became an opportunity for the so-called MAGA coalition of white Americans to merge their grievances in an atmosphere of righteous emergency. The war on terror eroded the institutions of democracy and set the stage for a new political movement with an old idea that some Americans belong and some don't. It is with all of this in mind that I found it galling to watch George W. Bush speak on Saturday, that was 9-11. The former president helped commemorate the 20th anniversary in a speech at Shanksville, Pennsylvania, at a memorial service for the victims of Flight 93. He eulogized the dead, praised the heroism of the passengers and crew, and hailed the unity of the American people in the weeks and months after the attack. He also spoke of recent events, condemning extremists and extremism at home and abroad. Personally, I'd like to pause right there and say, well, actually, I think he does deserve a little bit of credit for that, as far as it goes. Of course, that's because we're talking about what's happened under Trump, not under his brother Jeb. The piece notes that Bush voiced his dismay at the stark polarization of modern American politics. A malign force seems at work in our common life that turns every disagreement into an argument and every argument into a clash of culture, said Bush. Notes Jamel Bowie, in 2002... Bush said to the contrary that the Senate, then controlled by Democrats, was, quote, not interested in the security of the American people, unquote. Before the 2006 midterm election, he denounced their Democratic Party as soft on terrorism. Later in the piece, Bowie notes in his eight years as president, Bush launched two destructive wars, including one on the basis of outright lies, embraced torture, radically expanded the power of the national security state, and defended all of it by dividing the public into two camps. You were either with him or you were against him. Well, we have to agree. And I have to note with no small amount of astonishment that I was listening to NPR on most of the day on September 11th as they had did all sorts of coverage related to those events and what happened afterwards. I want to give special credit to the program Reveal, which did an excellent job of taking a look at some of the most important aspects of all that transpired. I was really struck when they pulled up one of the authors of the report, the official report done by the U.S. government on the attacks of 9-11. And no, I don't remember the guy's name, but the, the, the author of this report, or one of them, noted that, yeah, we were taking a look at this, and we, we thought, you know, these terrorists, these, these attackers, these hijackers, they probably had some help here in the U.S., but we just, we just couldn't find them. We just couldn't find anybody. So I had to pause right then and think about it and think, okay, so we got 19 guys on four different airplanes, who obviously collaborated with one another and obviously spent a great deal of time in the U.S. preparing for said events, and yet our national security people, the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, what was later grouped together into Homeland Security, all these various agencies were unable to find any collaborators here in the United States. It's as if 19 separate Lee Harvey Oswalds apparently attacked the United States on 9-11. Yes, they surely must have talked to one another about what they were up to, but they just couldn't find anybody else that helped them. In spite of the fact that, as summarized by some great people we've been privileged to talk to, like Peter Dale Scott, who wrote about this, in fact, a couple of the hijackers were living in San Diego and were really tough to find, even though they were in the white pages of the phone book. They'd been driven, apparently, from LAX down to San Diego by someone who was an FBI informant, a Muslim cleric of some sort, 
who, well, doggone it, they just, they just couldn't find enough evidence against this, against this guy. We would refer you to Michael Moore's excellent study of all of, all of this. What was it called? Fahrenheit 911, I think it was called. If you need a refresher on this, you could also listen to some of our programs back in the day where we uh, were somewhat incredulous over the fact that known people who had contacted the terrorists were allowed in the wake of all the mayhem on 9-11 to get on airplanes and fly back to Saudi Arabia unquestioned. And yes, apparently many of them were of the Bin Laden family. You think, you think that the authorities would have had some questions for those guys, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you think so? I remember at one point uh, reading about one family in Florida that in the wake of 9-11 left everything in the house, got in their cars, drove to an airport, and had a private flight back to Saudi Arabia. They just left everything where it was. I mean, like, I think the breakfast was still on the table. Looking back on it, I recall that we were amused at the fact that um, apparently three princes in Saudi Arabia died very mysteriously in the wake of 9-11. One of them was described as having died of thirst. And of course, pretty dry country there in Saudi Arabia, that, that sort of thing that could happen. But yes, that was the official cause of death. He died of thirst. Obviously, the Saudis did, did some house cleaning on their own of, of people that were behind all of this. I believe we talked in the past about how it was that when radicals in the kingdom took over the holy sites in Mecca, it was quite, quite a gun battle. It was quite, quite, quite a to-do. The Saudi authorities were stymied for a while, but eventually we were able to, to retake Mecca, and I, I think it might have been in Medina as well, I, I don't know. At any rate, Saudi authorities were able to regain control over the holiest sites in Islam and cut a deal with the Islamicists saying, look, we'll fund you, we'll support you, but you are not going to act inside the kingdom. We'll help you do stuff outside the kingdom. And uh, what do you bet that had something to do with the events of 9-11? It's pretty hard even now to get to the bottom of a lot of this. The talk on NPR 9-11 mentioned Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was described as um, the mastermind, the actual true mastermind of the events of 9-11. Osama bin Laden was the poster boy for what took place, but he apparently did not actually plan it out. He provided support, finances, and um, moral support, certainly. But supposedly it was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. So I looked up What's the current status of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed? Well, you'll be pleased to know he's still in Guantanamo. He has not been brought up on charges. Apparently, lawyers get to visit him and some of the presumed co-defendants that are there in orange jumpsuits in Cuba. And the reports are that there's, when, when lawyers get to visit these guys to talk about how a defense might be, well, if, if, trial, if they ever get charged and go to trial, they will have to mount some sort of defense. The lawyers that speak with these guys have to operate under a 40-second time delay. So the defendants are speaking, but, you know, there's 40 whole seconds before they're going to be heard by the lawyers, supposedly for national security reasons. So one does want to ask the question at this point, what do the terrorists know that has to be censored from their lawyers that has to do with United States national security? I don't have an answer for this question, but I, I, wish, I wish somebody would, would, would ask someone in a position of authority. Although, if they do, they'll just be lied to. Oh, wait, I don't want to say that. That's, that's too cynical. <laughs> that's, that's just too cynical, Mr. McMillan. 
Let me just say my suspicion is they might be lied to. Now, I also took Lawrence Wright's book out on the Twin Towers, which is supposed to be the story of all that led up to 9-11, and I decided to look up what, what he had to say about Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And you know what? He's not in the index. Now, I did not read Mr. Wright's book. It's been sitting on my bookshelf for many years. I suppose I should get around to reading it, but but if he's written a whole book about what happened to 9-11 and somehow he managed to leave out the guy that planned the events, it may not be as good a book as I would hope. And then there's the whole matter of what really happened when the buildings came down. This program was offered experts on the subject of what was found in the rubble, presumably the result of explosions that helped bring the buildings down. We decided we were going to just not go there on Radio Parallax. I went back and took a look at some of this, watched a few documentaries, and I, I have to say, it looks as though there were controlled explosions on that day, a demolition, not just of Building 7, but of the Twin Towers themselves. I'm definitely not an engineer, but when you watch the footage and you watch explosions that appear to be coming down the sides of the building, you just have to wonder. Now, the questions this would raise of, of how this could have gone down in other words, that someone knew that the towers might be hit by airplanes, and just to make doggone sure they don't do more damage than they're going to do if they collapse, let's put explosives inside these structures and help bring them down in a straight line so they fall within their own footprint. It, it sounds really stupid, but one of, one of the videos I took a look at showed how when the North Tower started to come down, the one I think that had the antenna on the top, there's a break in the structure, and the part of the building above where there's now a discontinuity in the structure, appears to vanish before your very eyes. Now, it's, it's, I don't know, like 30 stories worth of building, and it's clearly, as you'll recall, dear listener, probably from dim memories of watching this footage on 9-11, that when that building started to come down, it was tilted to the side. The antenna started to tilt, and it looked as though it was going to fall, you know, away from the building, but it did not. The upper part disintegrates before your very eyes. If you don't believe me, go back and take a look at it again. And as crazy as it sounds, and, it, and I'll admit it does sound crazy, I just want to throw out the possibility that there were charges in that part of the building alone, which caused it to you know, disappear into rubble and come straight down. There was a conference I was looking at about this. It was done 10 years ago. It was posted online by the aforementioned Peter Dale Scott. Scott took part in this uh, discussion, which took place in the tenth, on the 10th anniversary of these events. It took place in Canada. Numerous structural engineers came forward to show how the buildings fall at a free-fall rate. And thanks to basic physics, if you broke a building in half and had start to come down to the ground, as it encounters more mass, it should slow down, according to the engineers. And to avoid that, you have to have it break up all along the path that it's falling along. Now again, not an engineer, not a physicist, but I do remember how F equals MA is the most basic equation in physics. If the force you're talking about is gravity acting on a structure that's been disrupted, as the M increases, as it starts to fall to the ground and hits more and more material, the A ought to slow down. It's, I don't know, maybe I'm missing something here. If you know something about this, dear listener, if you're an expert in this particular area, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. As to whether there's evidence of thermite, a very explosive substance that's uh, been found in the rubble, I'm just not going to go there. I would refer you back. I'm sure it'll take a little bit of uh, 
snooping on your part. But if you want to find that, that conference that took place in Canada 10 years ago, take a look at some of this stuff yourself. In that documentary, they showed a lot of footage from 9-11 when they were interviewing firemen, first responders, who were describing again and again how the building was going bam, 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 explosion after explosion in rapid sequence. When I was in New York City some years ago, I visited the Fireman Museum, I think it was called, somewhere in Manhattan, and, and uh, they had a video that was hearkening back to 9-11 where someone had come over from Jersey on a fireboat. It was just mentioned in passing. He described looking up, seeing these still-burning buildings, and then hearing explosions at the corner, which led to the buildings collapsing. If you look at the footage of the buildings collapsing, you see large objects like girders and large chunks of concrete moving laterally, as if they were the results of explosions. How you might do that with burning kerosene, I I don't know. But again, I'm not an expert on demolition, explosions, engineering, any of that. But I sure as hell remain skeptical. And I think I want to get off the subject of 9-11 for the time being, although we'll probably circle back to it at some point. I would certainly agree that the current woeful state we're in does track back to the first year of the Bush administration and all that took place. And back in 2002, one of the things that, that put Radio Parallax on the map, if, if we can say we've ever really been on the map, was our intense interest in election thievery, chicanery, our, our parallel fears that we were going to go to a, a ridiculous war in Iraq, which took place, and its parallel was that we might have a stolen election again in 04, which, in our opinion, we did. And both these untoward events seem to braid together, I think it's fair to say, in, in, in our current predicament in this country, where we are more divided than ever and face a goofy minority of people who are willing to follow Donald Trump's outrageous lies that he actually won the 2020 election, but that it was stolen from him. Now, election theft, again, is, is something we're very interested in. We've had Greg Palast on this program several times and, and obviously need to bring him back real soon. But one guy that we had on back in the wake of the 04, we would say, election theft was statistician Steve Freeman. Which leads us to a piece that was published last December, December 19th, 2020. It was in Politico.com. It was about what was then raging around the country and, and surrounding Donald Trump's assertion that, you know, he, he really won an election day. What's going on? He's the president. What, what's all this crap going on about this, you know, trying to steal it from him? In the wake of all that, Carolyn Castor, in the wake of all that, Joanna Weiss, W-E-I-S-S, started off with the following. Stephen Freeman felt in his bones that something was wrong with the election. It was November 2nd, 2004, and the exit polls had predicted an overwhelming victory for Democratic presidential nominee John Kerry. But as the night rolled on, the margins grew for President George W. Bush, especially in Ohio, where the race remained uncalled as the clock ticked into the wee hours of the morning. For most of the world, the uncertainty didn't last. Kerry conceded the next day making a cordial call to Bush after concluding that a recount in Ohio wouldn't change the outcome of the race. Freeman, then a research scholar at the University of Pennsylvania, remembered wondering, how could this be? He dug around for the exit poll numbers he had fleetingly seen on TV. Then, said Joanna Weiss, he went down the rabbit hole of statistical analysis in search of explanations for the Bush votes that seemed to have magically appeared. A week after the election, 
He shared a draft of his finding with colleagues with the conclusion that fraud was the unavoidable hypothesis. His analysis wound up spreading widely, drawing thousands of responses from around the country, people who believed, as he did, that the election had been stolen. To which I would add at this point, that included us, and we would emphatically add that we still think the election was stolen. But noted Joanna Weiss, it sounds familiar to anyone who follows President Donald Trump's Twitter today. Even as court after court has rejected his legal arguments, even after the Electoral College confirmed Joe Biden's victory, Trump continued to insist the 2020 election wasn't above board. We would stop again and say, well, these are not exactly comparable. One of them is based on excellent statistical analysis. To that, we would refer you back to our show. We, we talked to Steve Freeman about this. And the other depends upon made-up crap. And lumping them together just doesn't seem at all reasonable. But this is how, I hate to say it, but I, this is what's acceptable in the mainstream media. Because Joanna Weiss was saying, what happens when a splinter group breaks off from the fundamental American consensus that we can trust an election? And the aftermath of the bush Kerry race offers the aftermath of the bush Kerry race offers one potential answer. And for anyone hoping that Trump's followers will quietly fold themselves back into the system, the 2004 experience suggests otherwise. The splinter is still out there. Well, Miss Weiss, if we were part of the splinter back in 2004, we'd like to note that we are not part of the same splinter in 2021. Nor should you be, dear listener. This piece goes on to explain why it was, it was really basically very unreasonable to, to conclude that the 2004 election had been stolen. Noted Weiss, even after Kerry conceded the race, accusations about shenanigans in Ohio emerged on several fronts. The first is what, me, the first is what might be called garden-variety voter suppression, perpetrated, accusers say, by Ohio Secretary of State Ken Blackwell, who was also the co-chair of Bush's Ohio campaign. And there is a documentary out there called How Ohio Pulled It Off. It was a product of what was called the Documentary Channel. It's a pretty good piece of work. And it shows how good old-fashioned voter suppression was very much at work in the state of Ohio. This is Greg Palast's specialty. We also talked a great length on this program about how voting machines were not secure. And there was... I'm not going to go over all of that again, but suffice it to say, there's compelling evidence that numerous senatorial and possibly national elections in this country were stolen through voter machine chicanery. In this same piece, Johanna Weiss goes on to say, but people like Freeman, who dug into the exit poll numbers, also circulated a darker theory centered on fraud that occurred after the vote via those high-tech voting machines whose results couldn't be verified against, independent, against an independent paper trail. Questions about why the exit polls were so inaccurate, which the mainstream media and even the pollsters attributed to flawed polling methodology, led others to spin out theories about who might have been driven to change the votes themselves. And you know what? That doesn't really matter. What only matters is that someone could have done it through the use of voting machines, as we recounted on this program back in the day, the owner of one of the three major voting machine companies swore his allegiance to George W. Bush and said he would do everything possible to make sure he was reelected. Anyway, jumping ahead in this skeptical piece, the Steve Freeman shared his analysis with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who wrote a high-profile Rolling Stone article for 2006 titled, Was the 2004 Election Stolen? 
Freeman co-wrote his own book with the same title, Believing His Pursuit Would Make a Difference. The article quotes him as saying, I wrote the entire first draft of this book in four months, working from midnight to late in the morning because I thought, you know, I'm saving democracy here. And I'm also going to write a bestseller. Friedman told me, obviously I was delusional, but nevertheless, it really powers you. And you know, that's a cheap shot. If you read his article, if you read the Robert Kennedy Jr. article in Rolling Stone, which we did on this program, you will find that it is sound reasoning based on statistics. Noted Joanna Weiss. He was indeed wrong about whether the book would take off. The book got scant attention, as did another book, published around the same time by Mark Crispin Miller, a New York University professor called Fooled Again, How the Right Stole the 2004 Election, and Why They'll Steal the Next One Too Unless We Stop Them. We have great respect for Mark Crispin Miller, and we think he was right too. Now, even Greg Pallas was worried back in 2008 that the 2008... Even Greg Pallas, we would note, was worried that the 2008 election might likewise be stolen. But if you recall what happened in 2008, there was something of an economic collapse that took place in this country in September of that year, which caused people to maybe think electing another Republican might not be a great idea, particularly when that Republican chose as his vice presidential running mate, Sarah Palin of Alaska. Barack Obama mobilized black voters in the South like they had not been mobilized in a long time and won in a walk against John McCain. But many people still look back and say it could have gone differently. The piece closes by noting near the end, Greg Pallast, a former journalist for The Guardian and the BBC, who's made election integrity his signature cause, wants to concentrate on fighting duller, less Hollywood, less exciting means of suppressing the vote. Provisional ballots that are rejected, signatures that are challenged, voter lists that are unfairly purged. And this fall, he concluded his own investigation, that was fall 2020, into vote suppression in Georgia, then joined the ACLU in a lawsuit to restore 198,000 votes, voters to the state's rolls. We talked about this very thing, about the time this article was being written with Greg Pallast. And it would turn out that he and Stacey Abrams' efforts to get people back on the voter rolls elected two Democratic senators that year, which led to, directly to, the 50-50 balance we currently see in the United States Senate. We're running out of time in this, <laughs> this long-winded segment. We're unspooling, but we need to close with something that we talked about in July. A piece by Dan Paltz from the Washington Post, noting that 2020 presidential polls suffered their worst performance in decades. As you recall, the pre-election polls showed that Joe Biden was set to win the National vote count by about 11 million votes, but in fact, he only won it by about seven. You also may recall that there was a tremendous effort to make sure that the ballots were not delivered by the person that Donald Trump had put in charge of the United States Postal Service, Mr. LaJoy. We think it is entirely possible that several million votes for Joe Biden just didn't make it to getting counted, making the election much more of a nail-biter than it otherwise would have been. We just don't believe that, you know, election polls in the United States fail to work as well as they do in other countries. The Germans declare the victor based on exit polling because statistics are valid. You can actually do that sort of thing if you do your stats right. And yet this leads us, as we run out of time, to the current issue of The Week magazine, which has on its cover the story Undermining Democracy, with the subheadline The GOP's Blueprint for Nullifying Democratic Votes in 2024, which leads us to one of the 
primary pieces discussed in, in this issue of the week, the Eastman Memo. We don't have time to go into that right now, so we're going to have to take a break. So we're going to postpone that till our second segment and close instead with this issue of, uh, well, we're going to allow you, dear listener, to vote on this one. The question is, which came first, beer or wine? This allows us to plug our interview with James Bamforth, professor of brewing at UC Davis. The Smithsonian answered this question by saying that the earliest evidence leans toward beer. They quoted Teresa McCullough, curator of the National Museum of American History. Archaeologists have found traces of cereal grains on mortars near Haifa in Israel dated about 13,000 years ago. The previous record belonged to a drink discovered in China dating back 9,000 years, which resembles a mix between beer and grape-based wine, which we suspect might be somewhat comparable to these seltzers the distillers are trying to promote right now. And yes, that is a joke, although a bad one. At any rate, both beer and wine were relatively easy to make based on the fact that yeasts are just about everywhere. Once you have a sugary solution and they find their way into it, well, they do their thing, and the next thing you know, you've got alcohol. At any rate, if you cast your vote to the question, which came first, beer or wine, for wine, well, we guess you're just going to have to demand a recount. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. 